Our Lord God in, in heaven above, we, we praise and thank you that you do not leave your church alone. The Lord, you love her, that she is your bride. And we pray today as, as part of that church that we might be able to sit at your feet, that you might speak to us the words of life, the words of hope that we need as we live in this fallen world. We thank and praise you, O God, and, and pray that we would be more than just hearers of the word and that we wouldn't just be here to, to understand or even just to add to the knowledge of our minds or even to be stirred in our hearts emotionally. But Lord, we pray that we would can be compelled by our will as you so work in our whole being, that we would walk out these doors. God, change people to live out your will this coming week. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, kids, on October 31st, which is about a month from now, only in the year 1517, that's 500 years ago, there was this man by the name of Martin Luther who nailed a piece of paper and which had 95 theses or 95 statements on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, which then the Lord used to spark the Protestant Reformation. And this year, obviously, like I said, is the celebration, celebrate, we celebrate the 500th anniversary of this great event. But Luther's actions were more than to be celebrated, they are to be remembered because much of what we are as the church today came out of the Reformation and the church's return to Scripture. You see, uh, by the time of the Middle Ages, so you have the New Testament times when Jesus and the apostles lived, and then after that time, then you sort of go into what is known as the Middle Ages, which is about a thousand-year period of time, where the church had really sort of wandered away from the things that the Bible taught. And so what had happened is the church had come to the place where the Pope had become sort of the head of the church. He was known as Christ's vicar or Christ's representative. And he was sort of the channel through which Christ's grace was to flow to the church. And he could assign bishops who could then assign priests. And those were the clergy. And they were the ones that could sort of give out this grace and the way that they would, they would give out the grace was through the sacraments. And, you know, we, when we think of sacraments, we think of the Lord's Supper or baptism, but they also had marriage and last rites. And they, you know, they added a whole lot more sacraments to the church. And, and they sort of looked at the people like you guys sitting in the congregation, sort of people who weren't greatly educated. They sort of saw them as ignorant and uh, they did not see those people as being able to have an explicit faith. In other words, they couldn't have a, a faith where they lived that out in their life. And so they didn't, the priests didn't think they were sort of really capable of that. So they really thought that an implicit faith would be good enough. You know, that as long as they came to church and they did certain things, that they were good. You know, as long as you came to church every week, and you, you took of the Lord's Supper and you went through all the motions. It was very formal that that was great. It didn't really matter about, you know, uh, 
having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You would never hear about that in the church in the Middle Ages. And you would you would look at that and you would then read what the Bible says and you would say, wow, there's a big difference there. How could we get from what the apostles were teaching, you know, in the scriptures and what Jesus said to where the church was in the Middle Ages? Well, there was a a drifting away of the faith. But this tendency to drift away, unfortunately, is not unique just of the church of the Middle Ages. It actually has been a problem that's been around forever. And even in the New Testament, you know, even as we look at what was said in the New Testament, we see that while the apostles were alive, there were those in the church that were teaching false teachings. And it's no less possible today. So what I want to do is I want to start a new series and I want us to look at the five solas of the Reformation over the next uh, month or so. Uh, But rather than just jumping in today to those five solas, I want us to look at the church's tendency or propensity to drift. And we see it in many churches, even in our own country. We see churches that have worship like this every Sunday and the preachers never preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about self-help. It's all how to have, you know, three steps to a happy marriage or or to have a successful business or how to have a happy life. But it's really not talking about our need for a savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I don't stand here today as superior to those churches. As a matter of fact, I recognize that Kirk of the Plains is just as open to the temptation to drift as any other church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we guard against that? How do we guard against that sense of drifting as individual Christians, but also as a church as well? And so I want us to look at Hebrews chapter two, verses one through four today. And I specifically want to, Uh, Just focus in on verse one. Uh, The author says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You know, if we're going to guard against drifting, the first thing we must do is to recognize that there is a great danger in drifting away from the faith. You see, the the Hebrew, the, the, the Christians that this letter to the Hebrews is written to, were people who were being persecuted for their faith and being ostracized, you know, so they were feeling that sense of of pressure from those around them, sort of this external pressure. And so they were very tempted to renounce Jesus Christ. And so, you know, persecution is one of those things that can oftentimes cause us to drift away, but it's not the only thing. It's sort of that external pressure, like I said, but there can be an internal pressure too that we may not even be aware of, which is called compromise, where we just sort of drift away and not even realize it. But regardless of the the cause, the author here talks about the danger of drifting away from the message that they have heard. Now, the Greek word there for that that sense of drifting, it's a it's a nautical term, okay? Which means it has to do with ships and things like that, kids. And it describes a ship at sail that's sort of drifted off the course. Now, I don't know much about ships. I've heard a little bit more about airplanes, which makes sense. We live around Wichita, makes sense we understand airplanes. But from what I understand, if you take an airplane and you take off 
on a course, like a long trip, and I don't know how long this would have to be, but if you would just be off two degrees is all, just two degrees, and you would travel on your trip, you would end up hundreds of miles away from your destination because of just that little drift. You weren't off much, I mean, and yet it leads you in a totally different direction. And that's the idea that that we see here in Hebrews. One of the key ideas is here is that this drifting away is something that, that largely happens unnoticed. You know, that the changes that are taking place are very minor. You don't even notice them, they're so minor. But it's not until much later when you see the consequences of that drifting that you understand that you've drifted. That's, that's sort of the idea that's here. So it's a little bit like a lobster or a frog. Okay, if you if you notice, and I don't mean to be graphic, but, you know, the difference between cooking a frog and a lobster is very different. You know, if you take a lobster, you notice whenever they cook a lobster, they drop it in a pot of boiling water. Well, do you know what would happen if you put a lobster in a pot of cold water and then you turn on the burner? The lobster would recognize that it's getting hot and it would crawl out. As a matter of fact, I, I heard the story one time of someone that I knew that they didn't know how to cook lobster and they did exactly that. They took a pot of cold water, put the lobsters in it, turned it on, walked out of the kitchen, came back in and they had lobsters all over the counter because the lobsters had crawled out of the pot because they recognized that. But if you take a frog and you put them in that same pot of water, cold water, and you turn it on, that frog won't leave. Actually, that frog will sort of get acclimated to the water and he'll just exist and he'll be just fine until he dies because the water gets too hot. Okay, well, we are a lot more like frogs than we are like lobsters. You know, we don't always recognize when our lives are changing if those changes are really small. And that's what this writer to the Hebrews wants to teach us, that there is a, a current to this present evil age pulling strongly on our safe harbor of salvation in Christ. We don't have to actively betray Jesus to renounce our faith. We can oftentimes compromise in very simple ways that sort of leads us off path. So simply by not paying attention, by becoming preoccupied with the sights and the sounds of this world, we can be easily drawn into that until we are swept away forever. And I guess I want to challenge us today, do we realize that? Do we realize that if you don't pay attention to your spiritual condition, it will deteriorate over time? Do you realize that given the corrupt nature of the world and even that, that remnant of the flesh that still dwells in us, that we naturally become dull and deadened spiritually, steadily believing the lies of this present age if we don't take advantage of God's means of grace? So without giving heed to the spiritual resources that God provides, our hearts will revert to, to pride and avarice. Avarice is a new word I've learned. It just sort of means, you know, loving money, okay? Sensuality and malice, all those kind of things, all those things that are characteristic that define our, our natural state of sin and lead to destruction. Now, you may be here today and you're a good Presbyterian and you've studied the scriptures and you say, now wait a minute, Pastor Rick. You know, doesn't the Bible talk about the perseverance of the saints? You know, and yet you're talking about how we might, you know, drift away from the faith. So you thinking that we could lose our salvation? Well, you know, 
Jesus did teach in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's true. But it is not also true that not everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ is truly a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that numerous examples of that in Scripture. I'll just share two. One, probably the most common is Judas Iscariot. You know, he was someone who walked with Jesus for, for three years. You know, um, apparently the other disciples never suspected that he was a fraud until the time when he betrayed Jesus Christ. So he's one example. Another example is Demas. And at the end of Colossians and Philemon, Paul adds his name to the list of his close companions. So Paul saw him as a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then if you read 2 Timothy, with 2 Timothy's, uh, Paul's later writings, we read these words in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We see as we read the scriptures that Demas had walked away from the faith. And so here are the cases of disciples, a disciple who followed, you know, who professed to be a believer and yet was not, and a fellow laborer of the Apostle Paul. And if that could happen to them, then that should cause us pause. Now, the reality is, is that the scripture does say that if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born again, and there is nothing that can snatch you from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are secure. The problem is that even those that profess faith in Jesus Christ think they are believers in the Lord. And, and, but Jesus says that there will be a whole segment of those in the church that on the last day, they will come ready to be ushered into heaven, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. I know you did all these things for me, but I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And so there's a sense in which even with our faith, you know, we need to be careful and examine our hearts, you know, regarding these things. I mean, we are secure in Christ, yes, but like a tree, good tree, true faith is revealed by the fruit. And that's why Peter tells us, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Or Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We must therefore persevere and use the resources that God has given us to, drift, to not drift away. I mean, you think about it. I have a gorilla ladder. I think it adjusts from like six feet roughly five and a half feet, six feet, up to maybe like 11 feet. And actually, if you unfold it, you can go like 22 feet. So you can go really high. But there's different adjustments on, on that ladder. And you can, you know, you can go just a little bit higher, you can go a, a lot higher. Um, and I think that, you know, when we think of our Christian faith, oftentimes, you know, we think of it either as I'm following Christ or I'm not following Christ. And I, I want us to see that our drifting can be in terms of degrees. And even those of us who are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and we have a relationship with him, sometimes we can be tempted to sort of uh, play around with sin, that we can be not careful uh, to do the things that God has commanded us to do. And so therefore, you know, we find ourselves sort of uh, loving the worldliness that is around us rather than walking in the holiness of who we are in Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about a work salvation here, 
but I'm talking about a heart that is changed by the gospel. If our heart is changed by the gospel, we are to follow our Lord. We are to seek to walk in the grace that he gives us. But Satan will constantly be tempting us to drift and to follow the ways of the world. And I think we've got to be careful. I think we've got to be careful in the way that we live our lives. So what are the things that we are viewing? What are the TV shows that we're watching? Our kids, maybe what are the video games that you're playing? Or maybe it's not just the kids. Maybe it's adults, too, that play the video games and stuff. Or, or you know, the different things that we do. You know, um, a heart that, that understands the drifting, the dangers of drifting, is a heart that... Uh, that, that God wants for us. The second thing that we see is not only the danger of drifting, but the command to pay attention, therefore. We see that in the first part of the verse. Mindful of that sense of drifting, then the author says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, what is that that we have heard? It's the message of salvation of God's son that he talks about in the preceding chapter, in chapter one. And here again, the Greek word for this, this phrase, pay attention, is another nautical term, and it's used to, to talk about the idea of holding to a course or securing an anchor. It's to avoid drifting off course. Um, you, you hold the wheel of a ship tight. It is that sense of paying attention to the things that you're doing, that you can stay on course. Or to avoid slipping out with the current, it's that sense of putting down an anchor. Because if we don't, Pay attention, we will naturally begin to drift. So drifting oftentimes happens without much effort on our part, but staying the course is the, the opposite. It requires constant diligence. I liked what C.S. Lewis said. He said, we have to be, or yeah, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe as Christians, constantly be reminded. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in your mind. It must be fed. Isn't that true? I mean, you, you listen to the preaching of the word today and you walk away and you go through your week. And if you don't open the scriptures and you don't listen to maybe uh, preaching on the radio or, or whatever, you know, it just seems like God's word begins to fade from from our minds. And as a matter of fact, he goes on, he says, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. In other words, he said, you know, most people that walk away from the church, most people that walk away from their faith don't do so because they heard a better argument for what reality is all about. He goes on, he said, instead, do not most people simply drift away. You know, maybe there was some hurt in the church. Maybe maybe there were just they got out of the habit of going to church, whatever it might be. And they just begin to drift. And in the matter of our belief, as in all matters, Christianity requires, therefore, hard work. The New Testament describes life of faith as a fight, as a as a race and a field in which a farmer labors. Paul says in various places, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I fight. So you see, when it comes to our salvation, when we talk about our salvation past being justified, that is an act. That is something that God does for us. We have no part in that. 
God is the one that saves us. He is the one that justifies us. But when the scripture talks about our sanctification, our present salvation, there's a sense in which he talks about in Philippians 2 about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now he goes on and he says, you do that because God makes you able to do that. So even in that, God is the one that is the driving force. But there is a more of a sense in which God calls us to that sense of obedience. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He says, uh, he says, we're there. He says, there is no spiritual gains without pains, you know. Right. No pain, no gain, sort of that kind of thing. He says spiritually, that's true as well. And he said, you know, if a farmer were to say, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to my crops until it comes to be harvest time. He said, you know, it's, it's sort of like that for a Christian who says, I'm going to be a believer and yet neglects God's word and prayer and, and his Lord's day and all the different advantages that the Lord has given to him. It would just be, it would be unwise and ridiculous. So what is it that we are to pay attention to in God's word? He said, therefore, we must pay attention to what we have heard. We must pay much closer attention to the word of God. We must remember and organize our thoughts around the Bible's message every day of our lives. We need to remember that we have fallen in sin and that it is God by his grace who has saved us. And so therefore, as we're living our lives, you know, that as we struggle with sin and we actually give into that sin and Satan comes in and he seeks to bring condemnation upon us, that we can stand up and we can stand up to Romans 8, 1 and we can say, look, Satan, Jesus, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. We must not forget our the salvation that we that we have and we must walk in the light of that salvation. We also must understand that we need to be reminded of the gospel every day because we can think we see so clearly. Right. I mean, how many people in here when somebody disagrees with you that your first thought is, huh, my opinion must be wrong. You know, I you know, maybe there's some of us in here that might think that. But, you know, lots of times we don't. Because we think we see so clearly, but we don't always see clearly. And we need God's word to remind us truly what the truth is and not just rely upon our own wisdom and our own strength. We need to daily be grounded, have our identity of who we are, be grounded in God's adoption of us as his own beloved children. We need to have our identity grounded in Christ's blood that was shed to purchase us from our sins and in our destiny as co-heirs with him and saints called to glory, but also as pilgrims sojourning in this world. You know, we're not part of this world. This is not our home. This is not our place. We ought not to be the frog in the pot that's just comfortable with our surroundings. You know, that as things heat up, that we're just like, hey, we're good here on this world. There ought to be a sense of a constant dissatisfaction with the things here that our hearts are really yearning for a better place, uh, uh, for heaven, for a place we understand and we very much feel the, the fallenness of this world. 
And that's why we need to be in God's word. Individually, we need to be in God's word, personally reading the word of God. We need as families to be in God's word, to be having family worship. And we need as a church to gather, to be in God's word corporately, to hear it read and to hear it preached so that we might do as James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, it's only as we spend time in God's word that we, it's through that mirror of the word of God that shows us the motives and the conditions of our hearts. You know, I was just talking with a brother this week about how I'm finding that, you know, we talk about how our tithes and offerings ought to be the first fruits, right, that we bring in. That, you know, it's not just that God wants 10%. He wants it first. He wants you to show him that he is preeminent, that he is most important. And I said, you know, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that my time with him needs to be the same way, that I need that focus. I need to be with the Lord first thing, that I might have my focus upon him. And it's amazing how my days look way different if I have that time to, to just spend in the word and in prayer. And I just see my whole day from more of an eternal perspective than I do from a worldly perspective. And so it's a good thing. Now, why ought we to pay attention? Well, that's what we see in verses two through four. Now, let me just go through these very quickly. First of all, we should pay attention because the judgment is greater in the New Testament because the truth is more clear. See what he says in verse two and the first part of verse three. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So this is sort of an argument from the lesser to the greater. You know, that the old covenant had to be taken seriously, you know, even though we you know, saw that it really was spoken by angels. There's, there's scriptures and we don't have time this morning to go to those, but there are scriptures that make reference that the, the law of God was given through angels anyway. But if that was given through angels and yet those that broke that law and every transgression and disobedience received just retribution, then how should we not even more so um, obey what the Lord has said? Look at, at the Old Testament let me just give a few examples of those that disobeyed the Lord and suffered his judgment. Korah, in Numbers 16, 32, rebelled against Moses and he was swallowed up in the earth. Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they offered unholy fire to the Lord and they were consumed by that fire in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2. And even the whole generation of, of Israelites who didn't trust in the Lord were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and then they died. And these are just examples from the Exodus. We could go throughout the Old Testament and see those that disobeyed the Old Covenant and were severely punished. But if all that's true of the Old Covenant, which is lesser revelation and lesser salvation in a sense, then it less clear, maybe I should say, the writer then says, how shall we escape if we neglect the greater salvation of the new covenant? In other words, if, if nobody got away with breaking the covenant brought by angels, then what makes us think that we are going to get away with breaking the covenant that's brought by the Lord himself? And if such judgment is true in the old covenant, how much more the stakes go up in the new covenant? There is a greater salvation and obligation to receive it 
by faith. It is more stringent. I think it's interesting whenever I run into people who say, well, the Old Testament was much harder. You had the law of God that you had to keep, you know, and even if you took just the Ten Commandments, let alone all the 900 and some laws that were written, you know, even that that was much tougher. But today in the New Testament church, we're just called to love. Now, we just got done going through First Corinthians 13. Brothers and sisters, I would much rather try to keep the Old Testament law than I would the commandment to love one another, right? You know, it's impossible. It's much easier to, to try to keep the external externalness of the Sabbath day than it is to purge my heart from selfishness and malice and hatred and all those things that go against the law of God, right? You know, so there's a sense in which, you know, Christ shows us, you know, not just the, the letter of the law, but he shows us the spirit of the law as well. And so therefore, it's most urgent for us to attend to and to receive and to hold fast to the revelation that's come to us in Christ Jesus. So therefore, we should pay attention because if those in the Old Testament were punished for their sins for breaking the covenant, will we not so be in the New Testament if we do not take advantage of the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. The second thing is, is that the message is given by God himself. Look at the last part of verse three and verse four. He said, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by sins and wonders and various miracles and gifts by miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the gospel has come to us by the Lord himself. This is not just the ideas of, of men who sat around and said, hey, I think we'll write the New Testament. Um, rather, this is a message that has come that's inspired by the Holy Spirit given to these men. So it's a message from God. This is what we saw in, in uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So this message demands our attention because it is declared to us by the Lord. And it declares a salvation that is given to us freely through Jesus Christ. If it were any other religion, any other religion by man always puts the burden upon mankind to somehow earn favor with God. But it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ where God takes the burden and he pays the price, giving us the freedom that we might live in obedience to him. What does Isaiah 46, 4 say? I have made you and I will carry you. God says, I will sustain you and I will rescue you. And then he said that... Uh, he has done all this, which was attested by signs and wonders. In other words, this message comes from God, we know, because there were miracles that were done. This sort of reminds us of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 22, or Acts 2, 22. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, you had these preachers showing up. Right now, today, we have this. We have the word of God. You want to know what God says? Look here. Don't listen 
to a person unless they share what's in here. This is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. But see, in the New Testament, they didn't have that advantage. They had the Old Testament, which is good. But they were coming and they were sharing things about this man, Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know if what they were saying was true or not? Well, what people would look for is they would look to see if these men could do miracles. They could back up their message to show that it was God that was speaking through them like the prophets of the Old Testament. And, and what Peter was saying on the day of Pentecost is Jesus was just such a man. He was a man who came and he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And not only that, but he did the miracles to back it up. He healed people to show that he had power over disease. You know, he, he calmed the storms of, of the Sea of Galilee to show that he had the power over creation. He cast out demons to show that even the spiritual realm had to bow to his authority. And then he even raised those from the dead to show that even death itself could not resist him, that he had power there. And then he laid down his life and he was resurrected again from the dead to show that not only did he have the power over death, but even over sin itself to set his people free. And that is the Jesus Christ who has come and who has declared to us this message. Now we go back to the church of the Middle Ages and we listen to all this about the Pope and, you know, they were having services in, in a foreign language and they were reading out of a Bible that was a thousand years old that, that uh, would misinterpret passages and all kinds of different things. And you think, how could you get there? But brothers and sisters, if we don't pay attention to what God shares with us in his word, we can be there ourselves. We can be there as a church. And so what I want to do over these next five weeks for the month of October, I want us to take one week and I want us to go through a different sola. Because in the Reformation, they, they had these five solas that were sort of a counterpart to what the practice of the church was today. And in that, they sort of lay out the essentials of the gospel. And I want that to be something that's deeply ingrained in our minds as a church of Jesus Christ. That we would not only know those things, and I think probably for most of you, you could tell me what the five solas are. And you could probably even preach part of my sermon that I'm going to preach next week. But I want us to think about these things, not just the sense of from an intellect to know what those things are, but to examine our, our lives as well. And to say, what is the reality of these five solas in our lives? What is the reality of these five solas in the life of our church? That we would be not just hearers of the word, but we would be doers as well. And we will be people looking to Jesus Christ to be our anchor, to be the one that grounds us, that we would not drift in our faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our, let's, before we pray, though, let's just take a moment to just have a time of silent meditation as we just uh, dwell upon the things that we've heard. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us that was spoken this day. We pray, Lord, that and thank you for not only the word that you've given us, but your spirit as well. And we just we just pray, God, that your spirit would work in our hearts to cause us to walk 
in the salvation that we have to understand more intimately uh, who we are in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would think in terms of our identity being in you and what that means for our everyday lives this week. Lord, how it impacts the decisions that we make and the words that we speak. And, and even when we sin against uh, a coworker or we say ill will, ill words towards our children, Lord, even how there can be the asking of forgiveness and the granting of forgiveness because of what you have done. Help us to walk in your way. May we, Lord, look like what Peter says, a peculiar people, sort of odd, maybe even some, because we don't look like the world. But let that not be our goal. Let us instead just seek to be obedient to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would use the testimony of your church and not just our church, but the other churches we prayed for and, and the many other churches we didn't have a chance to pray for today. Lord, that your bride would, would give a good uh, account of who her husband is. Lord, may we be a faithful wife to the Lord Jesus Christ and not an unfaithful one. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.